This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Professor Don Driscoll. He's an expert in terrestrial ecology and is also the president of the Ecological Society of Australia. Don joined me on the phone to talk about the New South Wales state government's legislation to protect brumbies in the alpine regions and how this is an environmental disaster. Then I had Professor Jenny Graves AO, who is a La Trobe University professor in evolutionary genetics, come in to talk about her lecture, Future Humans, Sex and Evolution. Jenny talked about whether the Y chromosome will exist in the future. And then finally, Amanda Dunsmore, Senior Curator of International Decorative Arts and Antiquities at the National Gallery of Victoria, joined me in the studio to talk about their exhibition, Japonisme, Japan and the Birth of Modern Art. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. As I said, I'm really pleased now to be able to speak with Professor Don Driscoll. He is a professor in terrestrial ecology at Deakin University and he's also president of the Ecological Society of Australia and uh, he obviously knows a lot about ecology, which is why I'm excited to speak with him for the first time. And uh, I'm going to be talking about an issue that touches many states, um, though New South Wales has been in the news because uh, they've certainly become um, a standout in a bad way. So I'm going to be discussing that in particular, but also uh, I take a more broader look at the Brumby issue in Australia. So I welcome now Don Driscoll. Hi there, Don. Hi, Amy. Hi. It's uh, wonderful to have you on the show and thanks for your time. So I just wanted to um, start out getting a bit of understanding of this issue more broadly. You've written an article in the conversation with you and Richie and Tim Doherty about the Brumby Bill, uh, which has passed the New South Wales Parliament uh, without amendment. And it's a very controversial bill that's been put forward by the coalition, the Liberal Party and the National Party, and it's been supported by the Christian Democrats and the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. And uh, and essentially it means that feral horses must be kept in the Kosciuszko National Park, which is obviously in New South Wales. Could you share with us why this legislation has been passed in terms of the government's um, intent behind it and what was the preceding policy? Uh, yeah, so the... the um the National Parks uh, and Wildlife Service in New South Wales went through a very long process of developing um, a draft management plan for Kosciuszko. That involved uh, extensive consultation with researchers and the community uh, and user groups to to bring together what was going to be a reasonable uh, compromise to protect biodiversity in the National Park uh, while also satisfying some of the cultural needs of the local community. So what, what this bill does is is throw away all of that work and just and and brings this new bill over the top of it, which forces national parks to manage a, a large population of feral horses in the national park, and that uh, that requirement overrides the um, the, the the requirements for for managing native species in the park. So where where there's a conflict between the existing plan of management 
and the management of horses. Management of horses will take priority. Well, this seems like quite a shocking precedent. I mean, is have you seen something so stark in terms of, uh, you know, a population of animals that aren't native to Australia taking precedence over any other conservation efforts for native species in Australia? Well, I haven't, I haven't seen it put into legislation to require a feral, a feral animal take precedence over native species in a national park. I mean, we've seen some pretty atrocious national park management in Queensland during drought periods where national parks were taken over as, uh, as cattle refuges, uh, having enormous impacts on, on native species up there. Um, but, but this is quite a different case where, where the government have legislated that these feral animals take precedence. So yeah, it's, it's very uh, unusual. It is unusual and uh, one thing that I wanted to explore with you is that obviously New South Wales uh, has national parks. I heard that about 10% of um, land in New South Wales has been cordoned off, so to speak, um, as protected parkland. But what is particularly unique and special about alpine regions and uh, the ecology of the alpine areas, not only in New South Wales, but in Victoria? Well, yeah, you're right, Amy. So New South Wales has just under 10% of its area set aside as protected areas, which are the areas we set aside for nature. Uh, and this bill says we're going to take back some of that and give it over to, to managing feral horses. So it's, it's, it's been sort of touted as a, as a sensible compromise um, by Deputy Premier Barillaro, but it's, it's nowhere near a, a sensible compromise at all. This is you, uh, New South Wales native species are already massively compromised, down to just 10% of, of the land area. And now they want to take back some more, which yeah, it, it doesn't. It's not a sensible compromise. So, um, Kosciuszko National Park is, it, it is, of course, contains our highest peaks, uh, and they're our only, um, along with some in Victoria, they're our only areas of, of above the tree line sort of habitat. So that includes uh, nationally endangered communities, the, the uh, sphagnum bogs and fens. So these occur. These are communities that. Are Occur nowhere else in the country, and they um, and they contain species that occur nowhere else uh, on the planet. So we've got species like um, southern Corroboree frog. It only occurs in Kosciuszko National Park. It lives in these sphagnum bogs, and it's uh, strongly threatened by the impacts of, of feral horses. So if feral horses were to get into the few remaining sites where these frogs occur, what they'll do is um, they trample through the the bogs, and this causes uh, tracks and compression of the ground which increases water flow and drainage out of those bogs so they no longer act in, in as the giant sponge that they have for uh, thousands of years that has, so that has uh, those bogs can dry out and they're no longer suitable for for the frogs uh, but also a number of other uh, threatened species that that occur in in those in those bog systems, and you you just mentioned there that it's um, obviously a, it's has a, it's a mountainous region. It has a very high altitude, and um, there are many animals and birds that would dwell in um, this national park. We know that land clearing, for example, has been um, a major threat to uh, endangered species. Um, 
obviously it's a national park so hopefully there isn't a great deal of land clearing but there's another element to this which is that animals that uh, that dwell on the ground those kind of smaller animals like you've said frogs but also um, the more native smaller marsupials dwell on the ground and uh, and that's obviously key territory for feral horses is that um, this the plants and also the animals that dwell on these um, the lower lying areas are reliant upon um, food and also habitat. Could you share exactly how feral horses uh, or brumbies as we've been calling them are degrading the kind of low-level um, territory in this area? Yeah, so horses love to... Horses have to drink water. They have to drink water daily and they have to drink a lot of it. That means they regularly go uh, to any of the creeks or boggy areas that, that are within their range. Now, those creeks and boggy areas are really sensitive to large hard-hooved animals so the so the horses will they, they'll graze off the vegetation but they also trample in the creek banks and trample uh, trample through the bogs and that essentially destroys the vegetation structure as well as causing erosion into the creeks and, and sipping up the creeks now there's um so that the threatened species that we're concerned about include things like the alpine shirk skink and the guthrie skink. There's some a number of uh, threatened sedge species and other plants, uh, and broad-toothed rats, for example. So a range of species that live exactly in those sensitive uh, lowland wet areas. So they, they live in those in the dense vegetation that normally occurs alongside these streams and bogs. So when the horses come along and destroy that vegetation, it essentially is habitat loss for these species there. Habitat has been completely taken away, then those animals have nowhere to live. That has a couple of consequences. That means that, first of all, the animals that that were there when the habitat was destroyed are either trampled um, or, or die some other um, miserable death. Um, so there's, a, there's an ethical element there. Um, but it also means that those animals are pushed closer to extinction. They're already threatened, uh, and having horses in these areas means that they're going to be uh, they're going to lose more habitat and be pushed closer to extinction. There's a, um, a species I learned about uh, just last week, about a species of, um, of galaxid fish, and it, it, it only lives in one of the streams in, in Kosciuszko National Park, and it's really vulnerable to this, uh, to this collapsing of stream banks and silting of the, of the streams. So there's an, another species that's affected in a different way, not vegetation but indirectly uh, through the trampling and silting of streams. Exactly and you highlight a good point there which is there's so many of these species. It's such a diverse um, area in terms of biodiversity and uh, and it's a complex habitat. Um, in terms of the strategies uh, in New South Wales and Victoria, I read that um, there was a, a draft strategy um, that suggested that the New South Wales would reduce the feral horse population by 90% over 20 years. That has now obviously been um, ditched. Uh, but in Victoria, we have also just seen recently that the state government has confirmed um, that they plan to either trap and rehome or euthanize 1,200 feral horses in Victoria's high country um, in our alpine areas. Um, in terms of the Victorian strategy... 
What uh, do you think that is a an ideal strategy? Are they, um, I guess, providing a better example in terms of managing um, the biodiversity and extinction threats in our national parks uh, in comparison to this new legislation from New South Wales? Yeah, so the Victorian legislation uh, and manage, management plan is vastly better than the, what New South Wales have got now. So the Victorian plan is particularly good because it take it will take out the small horse population on the Bogong High Plains. So this is the absolutely best time to, to manage horses because you can uh, round them up and ship them out effectively when there's a small number. So we'll, we'll be able to solve the problem of feral horses in the Bogong High Plains relatively simply. Um, the plan uh, is, is going to be less effective in the Eastern Alps where there are probably 3,000 or more horses. So their plan uh, in the Eastern Alps is to um, optimistically remove up to 400 horses a year um, using using trapping. And uh, I haven't seen the modelling that they've that they've used to to estimate that taking away 400 horses will actually limit the population size. Uh, but it does seem to be optimistic to me. So my expectation is that after three years, we'll have seen horse numbers. Uh, remain about the same and damage continue to accrue in the in the eastern Alps. But uh, the the good thing about the Victorian uh, approach is that it it has the intention to protect native species in in our highest and sensitive ecosystems. So after three years, if if the approach they've taken hasn't worked, and I hope it does, um, but if it hasn't worked after three years, they'll put all the management approaches back on the table. Uh, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I think that will have to include culling because uh, horse, horse numbers are probably not going to be effectively managed by just rounding them up and shipping them out. Um, that's an excellent point because in terms of horse numbers each year, they must increase given that, uh, you know, most animals do have a breeding season. How much do these, these populations increase by each year? So the, the amount that the horse population increases is going to be temp dependent on the density of the horses. So the uh, most recent reliable estimates suggest that in the highest density areas, the populations might not be increasing or might be increasing by a small amount, maybe 6%. But at the margins of their range, where they're not limited by food, where, they, where all the other horses haven't already eaten the food, their populations can increase rapidly. And uh, there are reports from the literature of horse populations increasing at over 30%. Um, the expectation... Uh, well, they... Horses increased uh, after the 2003 fires. Horse populations increased by 20% per year uh, up to 2009. So we know that horse populations are going to increase rapidly in those areas where they're not at high densities already. So and that's a real problem for management because it means that you know you can't control where horses are inside national parks, and there's going to be enormous pressure as horses uh, continue to expand into areas where, where they aren't already. Mm. And in terms of the stakeholders that are generally engaged in these processes, um, it, it's great that people uh, like you presumably, or I hope, are engaged um, on these issues so that we have scientific input. Uh, but we also see international bodies like the International Union for the Conservation of Nature often um, stepping in or providing input on these issues. And I believe they've also uh, 
I guess, released information or a position on this decision in New South Wales? Yeah, so it's, it's very unusual for the IUCN to to put a public position on on issues like this. So this is a this the decision that the New South Wales Parliament has taken is is really out of step with what the rest of the world is doing and what the expectations are. So the IUCN have have expressed serious concern about the way this degrades Kosciuszko National Park, uh, protected areas are supposed to be for native species, and and this ruling will turn uh, vast areas of that national park over to a non-native species, and that's why the IUCN have stepped in. We've also seen uh, the unusual step of the Australian Academy of Sciences uh, putting out a public statement as well, saying that they're also very concerned about the uh, lack of scientific input into the process, the disregard of science and uh, the attack on the national parks system. So, yeah, it's a, it's this, the decision that the New South Wales Parliament have taken is way out of step with, um, with national and international expectations. Exactly. And so you would think that uh, the federal government would have a role to oversee states um, and their activities when things like this happen, unprecedented uh, types of action that is out of step and does threaten the environment. And I know that there is uh, an act the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, which is a federal legislation. And that means that they do have, um, the federal government has the ability to assess any actions that relate to this um, and that they have some level of powers to intervene. Um, what kind of power does the Federal Minister, Josh Frydenberg, have and um, what do you see the Federal Government's role being in a situation like this? So clearly there's a a strong role for the Federal Government to to step up and protect Australia's natural heritage. So because the Brumbies have been legally protected now, that directly contravenes um, a number of matters of national environmental significance. So all of those... uh, uh, that threatens species uh, like the crawberry frog and the alpine shake skink, a range of plant species. So because because those because the horses are going to be re- because national parks is required to keep those horses in the national park, um, that will those horses will literally be trampling over matters of national environmental significance, and that should trigger the EPBC Act, and uh, the minister uh, should should be prepared to act. Surprisingly, um, we saw an announcement uh, last week, I think, that uh, Minister Frydenberg said that uh, he, he was not unhappy with the New South Wales bill. So yeah, I'm not sure how those two things add up, and, and I think it's yet to play out. Exactly. I did note that uh, initially Josh Frydenberg said that um, these these brumbies were pests and that uh, they needed to be managed uh, and then he had a cordial conversation with his colleagues in New South Wales and was moved to their position. Um, it certainly does present a bit of a conflict when the federal government is a liberal government and the New South Wales state government is also liberal. Um, it puts you know, a lot of political factors in there. Um, do you think this issue was politicised in the way that it's played out because we've seen the Deputy New South Wales uh, Premier who is a National MP um, really 
heading this, spearheading this at John Barillaro. And I know there was a lot of um, querying around their motivations to be protecting a non-native species. Yeah, so a couple of things there. Well, certainly, um, there's a, a bit of a cloud over over the the origin of the of legislation, and it's uh, been reported that the legislation was actually written by the pro Brumby lobby, uh, led by um, Peter Cochran, who's a former Nationals member for the Monaro area. So we've got the the invested interest group uh, drafting the legislation. And these, and then the pro Brumby lobby have made political donations to John Barillaro, and there's uh, he he uh, attracted criticism uh, a couple of weeks ago because he didn't um, properly declare that potential conflict of interest, and uh, so the the opposition in New South Wales are calling for for an inquiry into that. So yeah, we we yet to see the outcome there. Well, it is. Uh, but, Go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just I was just going to say yes. that the. Um, that it, it is um, it is pretty distressing to see the whole thing become a bit of a political football now. So we've got yeah one side of politics saying uh, we're going to keep these horses in the national park. We've got the other side of politics saying that that we're going to um, we're going to withdraw the bill, um, but but no one is prepared to say we're going to actually implement an effective management plan to limit horse numbers because everybody's so scared of saying um, that they're going to actually cull the horses. And at this stage, that really is the only humane, effective and cost-effective way of of solving this problem. And one of the elements of politicisation is it's it's put certain uh, scientists and ecologists in really difficult position. One of them is um, Professor David Watson from the Charles Sturt University, who has resigned from his position as a scientific advisor to the New South Wales government. Are you aware of um, other scientists in the community who perhaps were part of this the consultation process or um, a part of uh, advising the government on environmental Environmental issues that have really um, been put in a difficult position by this. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, that whole committee uh, must be feeling compromised at the moment, and it's uh, it's tragic that Professor Watson has had to resign uh, because of the uh, the clear uh, neglect of, of science. In uh, so the government just it is not taking the science seriously. They're not taking advice from. Uh, um, from their own committees, from the, the uh, national parks processes that went on to, to, to develop the management plan, and taking advice from the Australian Association of Science or the IUCN, the Austra- uh, Ecological Society of Australia. So they're really uh, go- going it alone, and, and that's and that's going to lead to uh, long-term consequences, uh, including uh, massive expense to try to restore the damage that these horses are going to do. Yes, it's my understanding that um, these types, the type of damage that these horses actually do to the environment uh, really do take a, a significant time to repair and um, and obviously by that point we may have lost some of the species that are critically endangered. Um, why is this uh, particular region more sensitive and uh, and takes longer to, to I guess, regenerate re- uh, and, and rejuvenate? Yeah, to, it's uh, because it's at high elevation, it's, everything grows much more slowly. So damage lasts for much, much longer and their yeah, recovery takes a long time. And we've seen this play out with, um, uh, with uh, t- 
cattle grazing in the high country. So um, farmers would graze their cattle over summer uh, it, up to the uh, 1970s, and uh, but by the year that these cattle were causing enormous uh, erosion to, and um, the Australian Academy of Science and the Ecological Society and, and a range of scientists uh, put the case that, that cattle needed to be taken out of those sensitive areas because it, it was not a sustainable way of managing the landscape. Uh, and that, that was accepted by politicians at the time and, and cattle were phased out, uh, finishing in the 1970s. So the, the, and the damage those cattle caused is, is, is still evident today. You can still go to places in Kosciuszko and see areas that are, uh, that are, that are being restored uh, after the cattle have taken away. So yeah, decades later, you can still see the impacts. Uh, and that's what we're going to see with, with the damage that horses are causing now. Mm, it's really, it's quite shocking um, to, to think about. And one of the things that I think is um, really surprising uh, is that the pro-Brumby lobby um, want to have these horses in the National Park and one of the reasons is uh, that they cite history and heritage uh, being an important element here, that these Brumbies are part of our national identity. I mean, what are the motivations? Because it doesn't seem like they're concerned with animal welfare, which, um, you know, one could potentially understand about the means or the methods that you might employ and you need to be careful that you um if you are culling any animal that you're making sure that you certainly um cull them in a way that is uh humane and that they don't um die over a period of days but like I, it just strikes me as quite uh odd that that one that's one of the the key arguments yeah look things don't things don't add up for me when i think through all the arguments that uh, the pro Brummy lobby have put things Things don't add up because right now they're saying we, we don't want to cull them because that's cruel. On the other hand, we're not going to control their populations, which means there's going to be thousands and thousands of horses across that area. And when the next drought comes or there's a large-scale fire, thousands of horses are going to starve to death. Now, when, you know, when there's a drought on a farm, farmers have the option of, um, of shooting their, their animals, and that's a seen as a humane and the best approach because you don't want to stand around seeing your cattle and sheep die of starvation or thirst during a drought. Uh, in New South Wales, that option isn't on the table. So we're forced to stand back and watch these horses starve or die of thirst the next time there's a drought or big fire. But coming to the heritage question, I think Australians have had the wool pulled over their eyes by some of the arguments that the pro Brumby lobby have put here. So... You know, they'll say we have to have horses in Kosciuszko National Park because uh, of because of the Sydney Olympics. You know, the, and of course there were horses at the Sydney Olympics opening games, um, but those horses weren't ex-feral horses from the Kosciuszko area. They were um, they were carefully bred horses uh, bred on farms, and they are Australian stock horses. So this is a breed that horse enthusiasts developed in the 1970s, uh, and, and they developed for a very specific purpose uh the other argument that's put is that um is that you know we have to keep these horses because so many of these uh horses supported the war effort during world war one you know the anzacs took their took their horses uh and and that's the, the heritage represented by these brumbies well that's not that's uh, 
virtually not true at all. So the, um, a, a report into the cultural heritage value of horses in Kosciuszko National Park reported that there is actually no definitive evidence that any of the horses from Kosciuszko National Park uh, went to the First World War. Now, it's possible that uh, some of the men from that area took their horses to the First World War and that some of those horses that went were uh, taken from uh, the area of the Snowy Mountains. So it can't be ruled out that some went. But the role that they played is n was not a very important one. The important role uh, for horses uh, was... Um, was the whaler breed of horse and they were bred widely across Australia, bred on farms and they're uh, the most important horses that went off to the war. So the links to World War I uh, for, for feral horses in Kosciuszko National Park are really very tenuous at best. Mm. Um, and I just want to close out this conversation by asking your views on national parks and the land that we've actually allocated to protection uh, because, as you said, just under 10% of land in New South Wales has been allocated as protected area, state protected. Um, but overall in Australia and particularly uh, the Victorian state government, we haven't seen an, an increase of uh, protected areas and previous Victorian state governments have uh, increased the number or the landmass of protection um, over many years. John Brumby is an example. Um, in his government certainly they increased uh, the, the designated areas of protection. Do you think in Australia that uh, we need to increase uh, the amount of protected areas that we have? Um, because obviously and as I was mentioning to you off air we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago with a scientist uh, from Queensland who uh, his name is James Watson, who was suggesting that even the areas of um, protected land in Australia are under severe threat. Um, some of them are significantly, they have a lot of activity, commercial activity, government activity, and so even the areas that we have designated for protection are under threat. Do you think that one of the solutions is to cre create uh, more areas that are protected? And if you had the um, opportunity to do so, how much would it be? So the the um, the International Union of Nature and the um, Convention on Biological Diversity uh, have have set the target of 17%. So the international target is to have 17% of the land set aside for nature conservation. Now that's a relatively arbitrary number. It's uh, it's, it's the actual best uh, area would vary from place to place depending on the um, diversity and sensitivity of different uh, environments. But, yeah, so New South Wales has 10%, so it's well short of that um, relatively arbitrary international uh, standard. Victoria, I think, is is near that standard, and and I, I'm not sure what this, how things are playing out at, at a national level. So there is room for more area to be put set aside for conservation. Um, but the, the critical thing is how it's being managed. So it's one thing to have a park on paper. It's another thing to actually invest the money to managing those parks effectively. And so what we've seen over the past decades is continuing cuts to uh, national parks budgets, loss of staff and loss of, loss of research capacity. And uh, so this, this means that parks are can't be managed effectively and that's, and that's why we've seen increasing problems with feral herbivores like horses but, but a range of other feral animals as well. So, uh, so 
So this legislation that forces horses to be managed in Kosciuszko National Park, I think, is is a sign that that our national parks are are under increasing threat uh, at a very high level, and that uh, people need to think seriously about um, about their voting intentions uh, come come around the election time. Because uh, if for people who love national parks, uh, uh, this government in New South Wales uh, is really attacking. Uh, the integrity of national parks. Exactly. And it is good to see that at least the New South Wales uh, Labor opposition would um, re- remove this legislation should they uh, come into power. So there's at least some difference between the parties. Um, but you do mention it and also a really great point, which is that uh, elections are coming up, particularly the Victorian state election in November. And this should be front and centre. All environmental issues in Victoria should be front and centre in this campaign and I'm sure that um, we can do more to lobby our MPs and tell them what we want from them in terms of the protection of our environment. So um, that's certainly something which uh, anyone can do, can't they? Uh, the, the simplest the simplest way to, to have an impact, uh, a, a positive impact for the environment is to choose who you vote for based on uh, who's, who says they have the best uh, environmental policy. And there are, there are some uh, very good independent ways of evaluating which part, how the parties are travelling in terms of their environmental policy. So the Australian Conservation Foundation, for example, has a, uh, a, a, an evaluation on their webpage around election time. So if you want to find out who actually has the best environmental policy, you can, you can have a look there. Don, it's been really fantastic to speak with you and I really do appreciate your expertise and your time today and um, thank you so much for advocating and helping us understand why this is so important. No worries. Thanks for your interest, Amy. That was Professor Don Driscoll, who is President of the Ecological Society of Australia and he's also Professor in Terrestrial Ecology at Deakin University and uh, his colleagues um, at Deakin, which co-wrote an article in The Conversation, are Ewan Ritchie and Tim Doherty. And if you wanted to find out more, you can see that article. It's called Passing the Brumby Bill is a Backward Step for Environmental Protection in Australia. And as Don said... Uh, The Australian Conservation Foundation uh, publishes information about this and other environmental issues and they do have uh, many fact sheets, one of which is also about this uh, New South Wales Kosciuszko Wild Horse Heritage Bill. What a name. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. Thank you, Gillian. What an amazing woman Gillian Triggs is. And I'm very lucky to have another amazing woman in the studio with me. I'm so excited to have her because I've been hanging out for an excuse to have her in. Um, Jenny Graves is a professor. She's based at La Trobe University, though she's been around uh, a few universities. And uh, she won a very prominent prize in 2017. Jenny was the first solo woman to win the Prime Minister's Prize for Science for her pioneering work in genetics. Uh, She's obviously received an Australian honour in the Order of Australia and she has received uh, the Australian Academy of Sciences McFarlane Burnett Medal and uh, she's also the UNESCO Laureate for Women in Science and she has many, many more other uh, contributions, particularly to the Academy of Australia the Australian Academy of Science um, and obviously the, her 
great research into Australian mammals. So I'm, I can't wait to speak with Jenny and uh, and I welcome her now. Hi there, Jenny. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, I just was so struck when I heard the announcement about uh, your win of that prize last year of all the fascinating things you've been doing in your career. And, um, and I did look into your background when I was um, researching for this uh, interview and I was fascinated to see, um, th- I guess, your early influences. Both of your parents uh, were scientists or had a, a really strong interest in science, didn't they? Yes, my dad was a scientist. My mum was a geologist turned geographer, so she became a sort of a social scientist. Uh, but in fact, they, they never really pushed me into science. Uh, in fact, the things I was good at at uh, at high school was art and creative writing and that's kind of where I thought I was going. Yeah, well, that's fascinating because um, it really goes to show that uh, science and the arts and those both sides of your brain, I guess, that are activated from in those activities are really important and that they're quite complementary. Well, it's funny that people regard science as being not creative because I, I think of science as intensely creative. Uh, I remember many years ago when I lived in a commune, um, the other people kept on saying, oh, science is boring. It's all about counting things. <laughs> what? Well, yes, we count things, but not just for the sake of counting them. We're always looking for patterns and and looking for the next big idea. Mm. And it says in your biography that you're an evolutionary geneticist. I was interested in that word evolution because I know that um, when it comes to, uh, you know, genes and genetics, there is this kind of, um, I guess, discussion happening around evolution and that, that, that factor in how genes play out. What's your feeling around that? Well, it's funny because I never considered myself an evolutionary biologist. Mm. I mean, when I was um, training, I was a molecular biologist, then a cell biologist. Um, and evolution to me was, was too, way too scary and hard. Uh, you know, big ideas, big theories, big egos. Uh, so I never would have billed myself as an evolutionary geneticist. But I guess I have begun to realize that everything you see in nature is because of evolution. So if you're looking for grand designs and patterns, you come up with always evolution, evolution, evolution. Mm. And the environment and environmental factors do play a role in evolution. And there is a field of science that is called epigenetics, um, which has had a controversial past and certainly wasn't all that popular with some people many years ago. And uh, I interviewed um, a professor last week about uh, epigenetics and how uh, the environment can inter- uh, influence the genome of plants and how, um, you know, certain information is passed down through, uh, uh, you know, generations in plants so that they substantially alter, for example, in drought conditions. They remember um, drought conditions and then adapt their behaviour. In terms of epigenetics, could you, I guess, explain to us what that really means? Well, funnily enough, epigenetics is a really old idea. Uh, I mean, the whole term was coined back in the 50s. Um, And my first research was actually on epigenetics because I was fascinated by the problems of sex chromosomes. Um, 
sex chromosomes, of course, are at the X and the Y chromosome, and females have two X chromosomes and males have only got one. Mm. And clearly that's not fair because <laughs> there's a lot of good genes on the X chromosome. So there are. one whole X chromosome gets genetically inactivated in mm. man and mouse. And we just discovered that, Mary Lyon discovered that in 1961, just before I did my honours work at Adelaide Uni. So that's what got me into the whole field as well. I wonder if it happens in kangaroos. So that's what got me into kangaroos and that's what got me into epigenetics. So it's not an old concept. Uh, you know, it was considered a very arcane concept until very recently. Mm. But what was really meant by epigenetics was, well, what influence the genes to turn on and off because of course every cell in our body has the same genes but you know your nose is not the same as your brain is not the same as your liver Mm -hmm. so it's epigenetic forces that are turning these genes on and off Um, what you're talking about is well whether the environment influences whether these genes turn off and on and I guess we've always known that it can because well one of the famous uh, examples is sex determination in some reptiles that don't have sex chromosomes is temperature. Mm. So temperature somehow interacts to turn off or on the switches that make you male or female. Which animals are affected by that? Well, mainly reptiles and a few fish. So alligators and crocodiles are famous because um, when the eggs are hatched when it's cold, they're all female. If the same eggs are hatched when it's warmer, they're all males. Mm, That's fascinating. (laughs) I can't. It's really hard to to get your head around. And I know that um, you you have said uh, that the research shows that humans and the model for us becoming male or female is not necessarily translatable to other mammals. Like there's a whole range of ways in which other mammals can become male or female. You've just mentioned one of those. Well, mammals are actually uh, pretty boring because we all do it pretty much the same way. We all have X and Y chromosomes and there is a gene on the Y chromosome that makes you male. It's a gene that fires up very early in an embryo at about 12 weeks in humans and um, it triggers a whole lot of changes to make a testis and the testis makes hormones and it's the hormones that make the baby male and that's pretty much the way it is for all mammals there are a few rather interesting exceptions Um, it's when you get out into the world of reptiles and birds that Mm. things are uh, completely different and fish are amazing they have many many different ways of doing the same thing with different genes triggering essentially the same pathway to make you male or female. So let's talk about the basics of, um, as you said, chromosomal sex. Um, so if, if, if people haven't done, oh, I guess, biology or science wasn't their strong suit, that's where I'm starting from um, in this discussion because I'm not going to assume anyone knows about this. But let's um, talk a bit about what uh, the X chromosome does and has within it because it has far more genes on the that chromosome than the Y chromosome and it is a, of a medium size versus the Y chromosome, which you say is tiny. What um, in ter- If we're trying to figure out what role uh, the X plays in terms of the genes that it contains versus the role Y has and, and the types of genes that it contains, I mean, what... Yeah, what information does each of those chromosomes contain? Why are they important? 
Well, the X chromosome is essentially just a plain old ordinary chromosome and it doesn't actually have a special role in determining sex. Uh, The Y chromosome is a weird one. The Y chromosome we know was once upon a time just like the X. It was just a plain ordinary chromosome until one day a new sex-determining gene was acquired by the Y and that was kind of the kiss of death for that Y chromosome because it meant that that chromosome was always in a male, never in a female. And that seems to be a very bad thing because um, in the testis rather than in an ovary, there's a lot of cell division going on. So there's a lot of opportunity for mutation. And that seems to be why the Y chromosome has continually lost genes um, and inactivated genes. So there's practically nothing left. But once upon a time, it was just the same as the X chromosome with about a thousand genes on it. And now there are 27. So there's not much left of the Y chromosome, but what is left are the genes that have become remodeled to do something in a male. So there's the, the, the sex-determining gene. Just one gene is all it takes to get this whole thing moving. But there are other genes on the Y chromosome that have sort of become remolded to do something useful for males, like make sperm. Mm. And so in terms of the Y chromosome, given there are such so, so few genes there and we have um, engaged in that the genome project, we seem to know, you know what a lot of these genes do, their functions, um, what are some of the other functions on that Y chromosome that are important? That's been surprisingly difficult because it's such a, a little chromosome. You'd think that would be the first one to be completely uh, um, described in terms of DNA synthesis. But it's actually very difficult because a lot of the Y chromosome is what well, is sort of genetic junk, just many, many, many copies of sequences that don't actually seem to do much. Probably a lot of them are ancient viruses that got stuck into our genomes and just went a bit mad. And they don't, they don't, didn't start out doing it anything for humans. Some of them have got remodeled so they are actually doing something useful. But most things on the old Y probably were not useful and they were simply got got rid of apart from the one gene that sets everything in motion and a few genes that seem to be important in making sperm. Mm. So there's much more work to be done in this area. Well, we'd love there? to know what's going to happen next, mm. of course. And um, the, what, what we have been able to do in my lab is to find out well, when this whole process started and we, we can date the time because, in fact, um, marsupials have pretty much the same X and Y. But monotremes, platypus, has a completely different set of sex chromosomes, more like those of birds. So that means we know when this all started, we know how many genes there were when it started, and we can predict, well, if there's only 27 left now, probably the whole Y chromosome is going to disappear in just a few million years. And it looks like that's actually already happened in some lines of rodents. Mm. So in this sense, um, because I know you've really been studying animals, not humans necessarily. You've been utilising animals as a way to illuminate what's going on with humans. Um, With your research and where it first, I guess, began, because I know you went to the University of California in Berkeley and you were there um, studying with someone who you really highly regarded and he was, I guess, a mentor for you. But like, what? how did your journey across these mammals, because you know, kind of 
evolve? Like, why did you move into kangaroos and platypuses and those other reptiles? Like, what was that kind of story? Well, a lot of things kind of happened by accident, you know. When I went to California, um, the last thing I ever uh, thought I would do would be end up working on Australian animals. So when I got back from California, I had all sorts of visions that I would use uh, cell fusion to to look at um, how the... uh, the DNA synthesis was controlled in animal cells and how growth was controlled. And I didn't intend to do anything more with Australian animals until a friend of mine who was back at La Trobe University said, well, maybe I could use my cell fusion technology to map genes in kangaroos. And I said, well, why would anybody want to do that? (laughs) And he said, and I've never forgotten, he said, well, Jenny... Marsupials are an independent experiment in mammal evolution. And I thought, oh, wow. (laughs) So I started um, helping him map genes in kangaroos and that turned out to be so interesting because kangaroos are much, much more like people than you would ever imagine. And so that led to me um, being on international committees to look at where these same genes were in all kinds of different mammals. And you look at the chromosomes of different mammals and you think, oh, my goodness, they're all totally scrambled. But they're really not. Mm -hmm. Um, We've just been completely misled by their sizes and shapes. It's the same old genome. It's just cut up into slightly different pieces that we call chromosomes. And marsupials are interesting because they are so distantly related to us um, that we could find out things from marsupials that you wouldn't discover just looking at mice and humans. And the sex-determining gene was one of those. Mm. So in terms of um, one of the, I guess, controversial elements that your talk will likely pick up um, and that uh, we've seen play out, I guess, publicly is that there's a bit of debate between scientists around what's going to happen to the Y chromosome into the future. And we're talking millions of years into the future. And um, you've certainly your research has brought you to a particular conclusion that you think is quite, um, you know, solid. And then there are some other people um, such as David Page who has come in to the defence of the Y chromosome and believes that uh, things will be all fine. Could you share with me the kind of debate that's going on in the scientific community about the Y chromosome and its fate? Well, I always thought this was quite funny and I'm just amazed that people take it so seriously. But right back in the year 2000, I published just a little teeny weeny back of the envelope calculation um, that, well, we know the the chromosome started its uh, degeneration about 166 million years ago when it had 1,600 genes on it. There's only 27 now. We can calculate the rate of loss, which is about 10 genes per million years. Mm -hmm. And whoops, there's only... 27 left we're looking at just a few million years and I thought that was hilarious yeah um, I, I realized that that probably the premise that the loss was going to be linear that's probably completely wrong so uh, it could be next week or it could be mm, forever uh, but probably that it will happen at some stage and I published this and there was a furor 
And there are lots of people who came to the defence of the poor old wife. Um, now it's <laughs> were interesting. Were they all men? <laughs> well, oddly enough, they were. Interesting, yeah. So I became the darling of the feminist movement. Yeah. And I got all sorts of very strange um, requ- uh, requests to speak and, and write for magazines that I didn't even understand the title. I remember getting a letter with the word hermeneutic twice in the first sentence wow. and I thought, Philosophy. I'm out of my depth here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's true that the primate Y chromosome has looked extremely stable. It hasn't changed very much in the last five or ten million years. Mm-hmm. So it may be that, uh, that the loss of genes in our lineage is slower. It seems to be much faster in mice and uh, mice-like creatures mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that there are at least two groups that have already lost their Y chromosome. And they're interesting, of course, because then we can look and see, well, what happens when you lose your Y chromosome? Is that the end of the line? Do you become extinct or do you become a race of Amazons that are female only? That's my, well, it is fascinating. Is there a way for us to do more research to have a a more certain view on what that outcome will be? I think it's going to be extremely interesting to look at these weirdo little rodents and find out exactly what's happened, when it happened, uh, what happens when you lose the Y chromosome. Uh, And there is research going on, not in Australia, but these are very strange little exceptions and they're all endangered. The mole vole um, is in Eastern Europe and we can't get a hold of them. The Japanese spiny rat is very endangered and on little islands in Japan. But uh, looking around at the natural world for exceptions Mm. uh, uh, is going to be very important for telling us what to expect of our own sex chromosomes. And in terms of, I guess, if we move to humans and our sex chromosomes, because um, some people are born... Uh, intersex and they may have differing expressions of whatever um, sex they are in terms of their biological appearance. Um, what? How does how does the X and Y or the X and X chromosome play a part in how or, or people of intersex and and how that um, particular uh, condition eventuates? Well, there are two things here. One is that things can go wrong with becoming male. The other is that there are lots of genes and lots of variation in all kinds of genes, not just on the sex chromosomes, that may alter uh, behaviour and feelings. So just looking at what can go wrong, we know uh, that there are numbers of babies who are born um, and there's something wrong with the way they have become male. So they don't look male but in fact they have testes. So that means, oh dear, there's something wrong with the way that the hormones are expressed or received, there's something wrong with the whole pathway. And that's in fact how we've been able to find out all these other genes that are involved. There's at least 30 genes in a pathway that the sex-determining de- 
gene actually determines, sets it all going. Mm. But once it's going, it's quite complex. It's sort of like a pinball machine with little balls bouncing backwards and forwards. There's genes that promote a testis and genes that promote an ovary. Mm. And there's other genes that countermand some of these instructions. So it's, it's quite a complex pathway and it's not surprising that things can go wrong. Um, and it's been very important to find out exactly what's gone wrong because then you'll know how to help the child and the child's parents. Mm. So so that's, uh, we don't actually call it intersex usually. It's not inter, it's just mm-hmm. um, something hasn't developed right. Sometimes these babies really don't have a gonad at all. So mm. they're not really intersex, they're really sort of asex. Uh, but there's also other genes and I'm fascinated with the genes that um, clearly alter sexual behaviour. So people talked years ago about the gay genes, for instance, uh, and shock and horror that there should be a gay gene. And I thought, well, that's crazy. There's going to be a hundred gay genes, probably hundreds of gay genes, because sexual behaviour is one of the most highly evolved and highly selected traits there is. Even in fruit flies, you find lots and lots of genes that will alter sexual behaviour. So it seems to me that it's not surprising that there'll be genes that alter behaviour. I wouldn't call them gay genes. I'd Mm. call them male-loving genes. And the reason they're so common is that in a female, they'll induce her to mate earlier and have more kids. And there's actually evidence that the sisters and female relatives of gay men have more children. And I'll bet you the same is true of female-loving genes. There'll be people who have a lot of female-loving genes and they'll love females. Um, and But most people have sort of a mixture of male-loving genes and female-loving genes. And you can sort of imagine these genes battling it out inside every person as to who they're going to fall in love with. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it. And I, and it's I guess one of the things that you've written is that um, the puzzle is not whether gay genes exist in humans, but why they are so common, because there's an estimate of between 5 to 15%. I mean, in terms of our understanding of this particular area, like how developed is it and is, is there more research happening in that particular area? It's, it's a thing that um, I think some people... Uh, some people avoid because it's so controversial. Uh, hopefully the controversy is going to mean that there's more good research done. I mean, every year, and it's something like 30 years ago that the first good evidence arrived. So there's a lot of, of evidence for gay genes, but I think we're up to about three now. But I'll bet you there's a 100 more there to be discovered. But I think the attitude hasn't changed very much. It's It shouldn't be controversial. It's part of the enormous variation that makes people all different. Mm-hmm. And it's not surprising to an evolutionary geneticist that that includes genes that uh, that alter your feelings for yourself and for the other sex. And so, I mean, that's you bring up some evolutionary aspects of that because you were talking about how they're more, you know, there is a level of um, procreation involved, and obviously, you need sperm and an ovary to create a child in a human. Um, so, in terms of how you're looking at evolution and uh, genes, what are some of the things that I guess have struck you as being particularly fascinating or or 
odd or illuminating, you know, in terms of why we're doing something? Oh, it's because of evolution. Well, to me, um, a lot of strange things can be explained by evolution. Um, I used to run a website called the Dumb Design website where I'd collect stories of things that look crazy. Uh, and really, uh, there's been a lot of attempts at, well, it's got to have been functional in order mm. to be selected. And I'm thinking, well, no, it doesn't really. There's lots of things that just happened because they happened. And yep. once they happen, they can't unhappen. So if you look at things like sort of the neck of the giraffe, um, there's a, a nerve that goes from the voice box to the brain, which is about two and a half centimetres away. But this nerve goes all the way down the giraffe's neck, around the heart and back again. And so... It doesn't make any sense functionally. Mm. But, of course, by in terms of evolution, this pattern evolved in fish. Fish don't have necks. So it didn't matter which way that nerve went around the heart um, because it was only a couple of centimetres to the brain either way. So that choice was made and it can't be unmade. And I think that's true of all sorts of things, including sexual behaviour. You don't have to look for why is this functional. Uh, You just have to look at uh, why it will be selected. And it might not be because it's the best way of doing things. It might be because that's the way a fish did it or that's the way our primate ancestor did it. And in terms of how genes operate in humans and particularly with illness, for example, you were saying, you know, there's there's a BRCA gene, which is, um, you know, a mutation that you can have. So you'll get a a certain kind of um, breast cancer. In terms of uh, the sex differences with diseases, I mean, you've written before that, you know, men um, are more likely to get Parkinson's disease. There are more women who get multiple sclerosis. I mean, how do we figure out why that is? Oh, that's that's a huge question, and it's been boiling for a long time. There was, uh, I read a committee report years and years ago that d- detailed all the differences in health outcomes and treatment outcomes for men and women. And I thought at the time, well, you know, maybe men and women are biologically more different than we like to admit, uh, because I think a lot of people say, well, it's really just one gene. Mm. You know, if you have the SRY gene, which is the male determining gene, you're a boy, and if you don't you have a girl if it's only one gene it can't be that important Mm. but you know one gene can make you dead Uh, one gene can have a very big effect because of all the knock-on genes that it it controls so it's not surprising to me that there are a lot of differences and there's some recent work that I that just really made my hair stand on end looking at how all the genes in the genome are expressed in males and females and it was something like one third of those those genes are really differently expressed in men and women. One third of your whole genome. We were thinking, I was thinking, well, it's not just one gene. Maybe it's 30 or 40 or even 100 genes. But no, it's 6,000 genes are definitely differently expressed. And what's the consequence of a different expression? Well, a lot of these genes will be differently expressed in the gonads, in the ovary, in the testis, and that makes sense. You know, an ovary is making sperm. Oh, sorry, an ovary is making eggs and the testis is making sperm and they have very different requirements. Uh, But some of these genes are expressed in the liver. 
So, you know, I wouldn't have thought that a, a man and a woman had would have terribly different liver function, mm. but in fact they do. So you, we just have no idea why this would have been selected. Uh, was it selection for a particular, I mean, is it important for women to have a liver that detoxifies something specific and males don't? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but maybe mm. that's the case. Or maybe it's simply an accident that arises from these genes being differentially expressed in the own, the gonads. So essentially, we're, it's still kind of a, an evolving area. Oh, absolutely. This is yeah. We have huge capabilities now that we didn't even have a couple of years ago. We can look at how every gene in the body is expressed in different tissues. Mm. Um, we, we couldn't have begun to think of doing that 10 years ago. We would have been looking at a particular gene. And, of course, lots and lots of people looked at genes that we knew were involved in sex. But they didn't think to look at other genes that didn't seem to have anything to do with sex but now we have the whole picture we are forced to really reconsider why these genes are behaving differently in the different sexes and in terms of the human genome project and mapping one's genome i know that it's become so much more available to people to do that and it's becoming part of a solution to identify certain mutations that is causing a condition so um, you know there were two Australian parents who mapped their own genomes to try and figure out what was happening with their child who had a really rare genetic mutation um, in you know when you're looking at the kind of science that's available to us now in terms of understanding the genome do you think it has application um, that will affect humans as well as animals and the ways that we preserve animals or protect animals in the way that we try and cure humans? There's a there's a lot to discuss in that question. It is a big uh, question. I mean, there's been huge advances, as you know, in technology. Uh, the human genome cost $3 billion to do. When we got around to trying to do the marsupial genome, it was still $80 million. And the platypus genome was $40 million. Now you can do a whole genome practically over a weekend for three or $4,000. Mm. So it's becoming a tool that one could really use in the clinic. Um, I'm not a clinician at all, but I, I'm looking at all the things that people can do, particularly in my field. People are looking at babies who have developed not quite right. You know, there's something wrong with their sexual development. They have no idea what. You can sequence a whole genome and look for differences which are consistent in that family with that disease. Mm -hmm. And many, many new genes have been discovered that way. Uh, that's true also of all sorts of other conditions. Um, there's easy conditions that we know are genetic, you know, the, the, it runs in families. Uh, we've been able to map the gene years and years ago and they are not particularly challenging to find the gene and find out what's wrong with it, you know, um, uh, things like uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy and that sort of thing. We've mm. known for a long time what that gene was um, and what it does. But there's all sorts of uh, diseases that we don't really know what the basis is and multiple sclerosis is certainly one of them and so is Parkinson's disease. Mm. So we don't know whether that's because there are many genes that contribute to it. We don't know whether those genes are affected by the environment. Um, there certainly seems to be an environmental component in MS 
mice, for instance, there certainly seems to be a sex component in both those diseases. So mm-hmm. there's a huge amount of work to be done and I think we're going to be able to pinpoint it very accurately by looking at sequence from many of these patients. Mm. And I certainly, yeah, something that I've just noticed is that a lot of autoimmune disorders have that kind of sex difference, that there are a lot. Absolutely, yes, there's there's big differences in in the sexes in autoimmune diseases and we really don't understand autoimmune very well. Mm. That's a a big challenge, but it's one that's being met again by sequencing sequencing patients. Cancer's the other one, of course. Mm. There's a huge amount of work now being done sequencing the genes of cancers and of cancer patients because it turns out that some cancers that may look the same on the surface but there'll be different genes that you want to attack with a therapy. Mm. And you have done work into the Tasmanian devil haven't you? Yes yes we got involved in the Tasmanian devil um facial tumour disease quite a long time ago when um, a woman who who had looked at the chromosomes of the tumours came up to my lab in Canberra at that time with her photographs of the tumour chromosomes and they're very weird looking chromosomes. They look nothing like normal devil chromosomes. But the weird thing was that they were all the same. Cancers from different devils all look the same. And I thought, oh, that is most bizarre. It has to be a clone. And it turns out that this cancer is caused by a devil cancer cell that gets transmitted from one animal to another. So that's a very, very unusual cancer. And it's been studied a lot because of what it can tell us about cancer, how cancer develops, what genes are involved, and possibly how you can um, get rid of it. Mm. Um, I want to move to uh, the ideas around um, women in science because this is something which is very topical at the moment. It should have been topical a bit earlier, I think, unfortunately, but at least we're catching up. And I do know that, um, you know, women want to study science. They don't dislike science they're not you know they don't have an aversion to maths there's not some kind of inherent sex difference in whether women prefer science or the arts Um, we see that you know many women are going to university and studying science but then uh, if they choose to stay in research they don't progress their career doesn't reach the absolute highest level in many cases compared to the men it's still extremely um uneven or unequal at the very highest levels in academia and in scientific research. I mean, you are someone who has reached the heights of scientific research and an academic career. What's your perception of, um, you know, women and men engaging in science and why are women um, not reaching those higher levels? Because it's obvious to me that there isn't a lack of merit there. There is, there's no, you know, um, surely there's no difference in intellect between the sexes. And so there must be something else at play. Well, I think there's a lot of things at, at play and, of, of course, because I, uh, I trained in the 60s and I was a young investigator in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, so I've seen a huge lot of changes. Mm. Uh, I think that there were two things going on. I think there was overt discrimination. Uh, I'm often asked, well, did I did I see discrimination? And I, mm. I said gaily, oh, no, nothing like that. But 
when I look back, I, th- I see it everywhere, on every street corner, uh, in the, the way that female students were, were treated and um, the way that young staff members were treated. I certainly, when I was first at La Trobe in the 70s and I became pregnant, um, along with a lot of my women friends, you know, I'd, uh, the, the, the thing you were supposed to do was resign and take on a part-time tutorship. Well, fortunately for me, my husband was studying and I was a sole breadwinner, so I stuck with it. But uh, most of my friends didn't. They did the thing that was uh, socially sanctioned then. Mm. Now, I think that has changed. I think the attitude has changed dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. But what didn't change was the practicalities, the practicalities of having babies largely, having babies and having to take time off. I mean, when I had my first baby, there was no maternity leave. I simply mm. brought the baby in the basket into the lab where she disrupted everybody's work <laughs> for, for some weeks. Yeah. Uh, but now we have maternity leave, but that's a bit of a two-edged sword because women who leave for any length of time are going to find it very difficult to get back. Mm. Uh, And the longer you leave for and the less contact you have, the harder it is to get back. So I think the practicalities of dropping out really have not changed that much. I think they are changing now. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted that the Academy of Science has taken on uh, the whole project of asking institutions to help in practical ways, help women stick with science. It's not attracting women to science so much, mm-hmm. as you said, it's helping them stick with it. Um, and it's it's very hard to stick with it when you have a young family. It's hard to spend the time that you need to spend um, developing your research. It's hard to travel and the travel is a really important part of getting established. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, if institutions can step up and make these practicality easier, I think we're going to see a big change in the number of young women who can stick with it and become senior. Mm. And I just, uh, it rec- makes me think of the uh, Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, which just opened a childcare centre on site, which is one of their, I guess, key initiatives. Um, I believe is it Doug who uh, heads up that institute. You know, he was speaking really passionately about the fact that they have phenomenal women at Walter and Eliza Hall and that he believes this would, would actually make a big difference to the young... Um, uh, women who are having children at this institute, do you think that it um, it shouldn't just like is it just about women get uh, having access to childcare, or is it also about men being able to? you know, be, take on the hands-on role of being a father as well? Uh, Doug Hilton's been a, a really important champion of change within the academy and within his institute. Mm. And the whole institute, I think, is is quite a shining beacon of, uh, of very progressive policies. And I think they are being rewarded by seeing very talented women come to the whole institute and stay there and mm. develop their, their passion there. Uh, 
I, I think that uh, in general, though, the next big step is going to be uh, an in, more engagement by men in child rearing and more engagement in the sorts of programs that we are now considering offering, offering women. Mm. I mean, why not have permanent part-time jobs for anybody who wants it? Uh, you know, a man may have another uh, uh, another life that he wants to pursue too. There's some, uh, one of the staff members I served with at a trove was a sculptor of some note and he would have loved a day off to do his sculpting. Mm. Well, what's wrong with that? I, we've got plenty of, of people and not enough jobs. I think it'd be great to have more emphasis on sharing the work and sharing uh, the positions. And if men then decided that they wanted to have paternity leave and time with their children I think that's fantastic it is it's something that um I've just yeah I've noticed that men would often say to me I love being a dad I wish I could be a dad more um but it's also frowned upon for for men as much as women to have that level of flexibility and I'm guessing my like in academia overall there is some level of flexibility in the sense that you know if you're researching um you know you have a bit of control over your timetable and where you are but I'm wondering as a scientist when you're kind of you have these um, perhaps conditions like lab conditions you're talking about whether that restricts the ability for flexibility um I think most academic lives are much more flexible than most businesses mm. uh, and I think there's been informal trade-offs between uh, husbands and wives for years and years uh, and that's what attracts some men into academia is at least they have a bit more control. A lot of the work can be done at home mm. and they can participate a lot more. Uh, I, th I think the formal recognition is still pretty slow in coming. You know, science, like everything else, is extremely competitive. There are lots of people who are trying to make it up the career ladder and see uh, spending uh, mornings home with their kids as being... Uh, an impediment to them getting up that ladder. I don't know how that's going to stop. Um, I, mm. I can't how the com competition is going to abate. Uh, but I think it has to, or at least the attitude to competition has to abate. When it, it becomes normal for men to want to spend a day at home with their kids, enough men will be doing it that I'm hoping that the level of competition won't be so ferocious. Mm, yeah. And... Just to, I guess, close out this discussion, um, you're a great role model for men and women who are interested in science and genetics and biology. And um, it's ov obviously people can look to your career as an example of something which, you know, there's so much variation um, and you were really able to explore huge amounts of fields and you still are, you know, um, forging new paths with other researchers. Um, how do you see yourself and your role within the scientific and academic community? And how um, are you, I guess, working with emerging or early career researchers to support their work? Well, role models, um, there's a funny one. I never really had role models myself. Uh, and a lot of young women tell me that 
uh, women who have been very successful are sometimes not very inspirational to them because they look at them and think, well, they were born child prodigies and they sped straight up the stairway to heaven. Mm. My life's not like that. My life is a mess. So one thing I'm trying to do very seriously is to show younger women that our lives were a mess too, uh, that we went through the same things that they're going through now. We had kids who were sick the day you have a nine o'clock lecture. We lost the car keys, found them in the freezer. You know, life is very crazy for all of us. And I'm trying now to get some stories together of what I call reality CV. And that is women who have been very successful, but have moved mountains and hurdled hurdles and dodged obstacles just like the young women of today. And I'm I'm hoping that um, they will be really inspirational role models, not because they're child prodigies, but because they have stuck with it and uh, and become successful in spite of some obstacles. So you're still human. <laughs> it, absolutely. We're still human. We always were human. And sometimes our lives were a mess. That's really nice to hear because <laughs> it seems like you've achieved a lot. Um, and what this is a perfect segue into what you're doing, um, which is tomorrow night, Wednesday the 13th of June, um, you're actually going to be at Eltham High School uh, in Eltham and you are going to be delivering a lecture which is called Future Humans, Sex and Evolution. And it's $5 for general admission and $0 for school-aged people. So so it's great to see that you're there, um, you know, talking with uh, people in school ages and also above in the community about science and getting them engaged. And uh, and it's also um, brought together by North STEM Network, which is uh, brings together a range of uh, organisations like the Royal Society of Victoria, Melbourne Polytechnic, um, tech schools. So it's really good to see that kind of community engagement. Um, and I hope that people can get on down and to see you there in Eltham uh, tomorrow night, which starts at seven. I'm really looking forward to that. I love talking to high school students and I particularly want to show them what fun science is. Science is full of people and and fun and social uh, interactions and it's full of women. It is full of women. That's so true. Exactly. And um, and I'm really excited that uh, we have great women like you to be talking about it. Thank you so much, Jenny, for spending the time today to come in and spend so much of your energy and intellect with me talking about this issue. Well, thank you, Amy. It's been a lot of fun. And that was the wonderful Professor Jenny Graves and she is based at La Trobe University. She's an evolutionary geneticist working with Australian animals such as the kangaroo, platypus, Tasmanian devils, dragons, aka lizards. Um, and uh, she's obviously worked up in Canberra and she was, as I said, the uh, first solo woman to win the Prime Minister's Prize for Science, which was in 2017. Uh, she's achieved so much already and she continues to do so. So uh, do head along to that event, which is uh, tomorrow night, 7pm at Eltham High School. And you can look it all up on the Royal Society of Victoria's website, which has all the details there. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. This is me, Amy Mullins, and uh, I have with me in the studio Amanda Dunsmore, and she is the Senior Curator of International Decorative Arts and Antiquities at the National Gallery of Victoria, and uh, she's here to discuss an exhibition that is free, and it's at the NGV International, which is uh, the one not in Fed Square. It's um, the the big one down over towards South Bank and it is called Japonisme, Japan and the Birth of Modern Art and uh, this is really all about the interplay between um, Japanese culture and Western culture and just how uh, they have interacted at a certain point in history. So I'm really excited to welcome Amanda now. Hi Amanda. Hello Amy. Hi, it's fabulous to have you in here and to talk about, um, well, and an it a whole concept that I guess it does deserve its own exhibition. Um, it is a really important influence on, um, the birth of modern art, certainly, right. um, you know, the Impressionists, um, we've seen Art Nouveau, which is just a bit before mm-hmm. that, um, and as well as Fauvism and uh, people like Van Gogh. So there's um, that was one of the influences. It wasn't the only influence. Obviously, there was a lot happening at that time and a lot of That's upheaval. Right. Yes. Um, but before we head into that content, I want to know about your job because <laughs> it sounds fascinating and um, and great that Mm. there is an International Decorative Arts and Antiquities Senior Curator. I'm really (laughs) excited. So what do you do on an average day? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Many things. As curators, we cover a broad spectrum of... uh uh, role of roles, I guess we look after the collections, obviously the permanent collections, and uh, I look after the decorative arts and antiquities. And decorative arts encompasses really objects, essentially. And I look after the international decorative arts, so non-Australian works, which is the ceramics, the glass, the metalwork, the furniture. So curators are responsible for displaying the collections, of course, throughout the galleries. Uh, we put forward. Uh, to management, we put forward concepts for display, different ideas, how we'd like to present the collections, which we rotate um, three or four times a year, um, aspects of the collections. We bring in new acquisitions into the collection, which is a really exciting aspect of the job, obviously. Mm. It has a fair amount of paperwork around it, of course, as you'd <laughs> expect, but um, but it's a very rewarding aspect of the role to be able to bring in such you know, marvellous works into the collection and to build the collections for, uh, for the future. Mm. Uh, we catalogue the collections, of course. We, you know, it's a management process, of course. So we're always uh, cataloguing, um, researching. Um, we write on the collections, of course. A whole range of activities, basically. Yes, mm. and of course, produce exhibitions around the collections as well, um, which is, of course, one of the most exciting aspects of the role. Definitely, it's a very creative element mm. to, you know, imagine um, an experience and to try and tell a story. Um, exactly. Yeah, you know, through in, art. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, and and the placement of the art is so important. That's right. Um, and that's why I, you know, obviously I went in person to get a sense of the placement and mm-hmm. what the the story that you were trying to tell mm. in this exhibition. Um, and when. Uh, First of all, if anyone um, gets to level one and you see the big TV screen um, that says Japonisme, 
and you walk through and you see Asian art and there should be like Hindu art and a whole range yes, of art. Southeast you need to, Asian, yes. Yeah, you need to keep walking. Mm. You walk um, through there and up the platform around that yep. glass. Go up the ramp of, to the mezzanine gallery. Exactly. Because yep. I got a bit um, disoriented. So if anyone's looking for it, that's where it is. You yes. need to keep moving through that yes, Asian through art through the Asian galleries on the first floor and you turn left and go up the ramp. Yep. Yep. Perfect. So... Once we're there, we walk in <laughs> and uh, and we are really seeing Japanese art, traditional Japanese art at the beginning of this exhibition. Um, in terms of the collection that the NGV holds, how extensive or and representative is mm. that collection of Japanese art and the types of art that you've chosen for the beginning of this um, exhibition? exhibition? Yeah. It's very strong. Yes, it's very strong. We we wanted to do this exhibition because of the strengths of the gallery's collection, uh, particularly in the decorative arts, I would say, the Western decorative arts um, of this period of the second half of the 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, as I said, so the gallery has... Uh, really extensive collections with great depth and quality of this period uh, in the decorative arts but also in works on paper as well but we wanted to show a a broad selection of works from the collection so there are also paintings and fashion and textiles as well in there Um, but as you've said we've not you've noted that we have Japanese art in there as well, of course, uh, because it is the influence of Japanese art on Western art that we're really interested in looking at uh, in this exhibition. And so we have mm. used uh, examples of Japanese art, um, more, m- mostly woodblock prints uh, th- that uh, are placed at certain points in the exhibition as references, if you like, and to make the dialogue between uh, the design or the use of colour uh, or compositional aspect of Japanese art and how that has influenced uh, Western artists and designers. Mm. And we're looking at a period of Japanese art that spans over two centuries, um, particularly the Edo period of 1600 to 1868. So um, the, the Japanese art that is in this exhibition really, um, it's so of a style mm. it's so it's not uniform but it definitely has a great deal of similarity in that's the right. aesthetic that it yes presents. that it projects that's yeah. right and well we see through the Edo period the rise of um, a so-called style called rinpa which is a it's a style of, of art of, of design in japanese art that um really comes out of shinto beliefs and uh, nature worship in that sense and so um, art of this period uh, into the 19th century really reflects that uh, fascination and delight and um, absolute reverence that japanese artists had for the natural world and how this is and this is reflected through their art um in quite po- sometimes quite poetic but also very stylized um, approaches as well and it is this um it, well some these are some aspects if you like um both the subject matter of the natural world but also the way japanese artists represented it over uh, the 18th and 19th centuries that was such of such profound influence on western artists of the time Mm. and in terms of um the the woodblock prints that you're talking about what kind of um process does an artist at that time go through to create a print like that 
Is it is it like a highly complex or Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a um, yes, a printing process um, using um, a wood um, base, if you like, a wood block um, where the design is literally carved into the wood and then um, inked up several times to get the different uh, colours um, on the plate and of course on the print the final print and of course the sk- the skill is as much in the actual carving of the design and the inking but then the actual printing so that you get the registration absolutely spot on so that you don't get colors out of sync um when in the final print uh, mm. so it's quite a complex process but one that the japanese were obvious obvious masters at yes and it's a very like the artworks are very flat in a sense, but they have depth as well. And yeah. the depth is created not through yeah. um, the traditional modes that you would see in oil painting. In Western art, that's right. Yeah, that, um, and that's certainly where uh, modern artists in Europe took some of their cues to create a new kind of depth, yes, wasn't it, through right. the use of colour that's and it. contrast. That's right, yes. Yeah. So... Uh, Linear perspective, which is such a foundational aspect of, uh, of of Western art training, if you like, classical Western art tr- training, you do not see that in Japanese art, historical Japanese art. And as you mentioned, J- the Japanese artists use different techniques to give a sense of illusionary depth and space, pictorial space. And one of those uh, um, as, uh, one of those approaches was through contrasts in colour and rep- repetition of motifs as well. So in the exhibition. Uh, where we have a, a section looking at landscape and which is about both the influence of um, the subject matter itself of landscape but it's also looking at compositional devices and perspective and we have a marvellous juxtaposition of a vertical woodblock print by Hiroshige mm-hmm. uh, and then we have a vertical painting uh, by Arthur Street and the Australian Impressionist painter oh, yeah. and... Um, just looking at, of course, the influence of both the vertical format of the painting, uh, uh, referencing the vertical woodblock prints or hanging scrolls of Japanese art, and then also the composition and the different devices within that. So the, the street and painting is a scene of Sydney Harbour, but it's a very narrow focused in perspective but there's no linear perspective to speak of and and what creates that illusion of depth that we see is the fact that um, the cliff face um, is is presented right at the front of the painting very tightly cropped in and mm-hmm. because it's cropped in it's virtually in shadow so it's almost black and it's almost like a solid block of color and juxtaposed that is juxtaposed with the the harbor um, water behind or to the right effectively uh, which looks like it's sitting behind um, in the background and the and the golden cliff um, uh, cliff faces as well of the harbour uh, and it is that contrast of colour of the bluey green of the water and the mm. golden yellow colour of the cliffs against the the, the, the dark cliff face um, which appears to be at the front um, that gives a sense of illusionary depth but in fact there is in fact no linear perspective whatsoever in the painting. No, it seems like it's a crop, like he's yes. just kind of if you're thinking Literally about it, it yeah, like a, a landscape photo that you've just taken of the Sydney Harbour, he's just cropped it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a, a, a very common device um, in wood in Japanese woodblock prints that cropping in of, of imagery and cropping mm. in it at, at um, unusual angles, particularly um, um, side-on angles, if you like, as well. Yeah. to give a dramatic sense in the in the in in a in a sub in a subject in a work. Mm. Well, it is a really great example of that. Um, that 
artistic mm. approach and mm. and it is excellent to see them put together side by side because it's something you probably wouldn't see that often together. No, no, not often at all. No, that's right. Yeah, and there are um, quite a few prints, not only Japanese woodblock prints, but prints um, by European artists yes. such as... Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. That's right. She's yes. obviously a very well-known um, French yep. artist yes. and uh, he did some very iconic mm. uh, really prints, one of which I had hanging on my wall um, <laughs> during university, which was the Divan Japonais. Yes, uh, theatre scene, cabaret yeah. scene. Yes. So in terms of those pieces, the Japanese and the European mm. that you've Juxtaposed, yeah, yeah, and then put together. What what was really, um, what were you trying to say about those? Okay, so those are both. Uh, again, it's the influence of subject matter itself. So theatre, of course. So the Kabuki theatre, of course, was um, uh, such a, a feature of um, Japanese cultural life, uh, certainly in the nineteenth century, and uh, many many artists depicted it through woodblock prints, both in portraiture, and we've got a lovely dialogue of um, of Kabuki woodblock portraits, uh, Kabuki actors, I should say, in, mm. as wood, in woodblock uh, prints. And and juxtaposed with um, a fabulous Toulouse-Lautrec portrait of of, um, of a of an actress Marcel Lender, um, but mm. then also uh, other theatre scenes as well. Um, so if this was a new uh, area of subject matter for Western artists. It was not a it was not a traditional uh, um, subject that, that that artists would have necessarily um, chosen to have depicted um, at this time or prior to this, shall we say, and prior to the influence of Japanese art coming into Europe and at this time in the second half of the 19th century. It's mm. a new... So that, that focus on city life um, and, and all those um, aspects of, of, of a bustling city life uh, that became such a, I guess, a strong influence on Western artists of the time and Toulouse-Lautrec particularly focused on theatre scenes and cabaret um, Scenes and um, the divan japonais is a is a very famous image, um, but wonderfully evocative of of the influence of Japanese design at the time through its use of flat colour uh, blocks of colour. The 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 um, uh, key person in the the woman in the f- uh, front of the image is dressed entirely in black, and there is literally. N- um, she is one solid mass of black colour. There is mm. no modelling at all or detailing at all of the of of her outline whatsoever. Um, but and she's simply this one solid colour. And equally, other aspects of the print um, are picked out in in solid blocks of colour. And then it's of course that very specific angle that um, when you look into the image much more, you realise that you're looking um, down onto a. Um, a um, a theatre, uh, uh, I should say, a um, stage um, scene from a very um, particular angle, high, almost bird's eye perspective from an angle from the side. Uh, and that angular view from on high is, again, a very um, typical Japanese uh, approach to um, composing an image, if you like, mm. um, which uh, Toulouse-Lautrec was a great master at, um, at using in his own works. He was. Um, and one of the interesting elements for me was to see a uh, William Morris print. Um, Some wallpaper. Yeah. Mm. It was interesting. It's called the Trellis Wallpaper of 1864. Mm. And um, certainly the arts and crafts movement in uh, England was, you know, very um, practical, utilitarian, <laughs> mm. um 
quite know, opposed to in, uh, the Industrial Revolution yeah. and um, mass oh, well, production that that, in, in, yes. A reaction against yes, it. Yeah. That's exactly right. In terms of the British um, or English artists, we also see um, a Whistler piece as well. Yeah. Um, what was the d- interaction there? Because there's quite a lot of porcelain um, in this exhibition and also there's a silverware, mm. s- well, a couple of silverware sets yes. which are very revolutionary really That's for right. the time. Yeah. Um, what was the kind of landscape in Britain or England at the time and um, and the Japanese influence there? It's broad uh, and and different artists took different, um, I guess, different inspiration from Japanese art. You made reference to the William Morris wallpaper. Morris himself actually was not enamoured with Japanese design at all whatsoever. He saw it as a passing fad, basically, and and did did not pay much credence to it, which is quite interesting Mm. in the sense that he this trellis wallpaper actually pays so much homage to Japanese design ironically through the use of the trellis itself that grid-like uh, structure if you like which which really sort of forms the basis of the image itself or the pattern I should say and the way that it's a it's basically a trellis literally with a rose vine climbing through it and then birds placed strategically over it uh, in different in different positions and angles so some are coming in in direct flight some are sort of posed and sitting on the trellis um, but they're all presented in quite unique angles and not not in a traditional western sense of uh, that ethnographic study of of the natural world that that western artists would have otherwise um, perhaps um, seen it as mm. uh, or approached it as in this case in the in the morris wallpaper they're they're in very unique positions and 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 quite, almost as if the bird is just literally in flight or it's just landed and that once again is a very uh, japanese uh, uh, approach and device certainly in representing bird life but more broadly uh, in terms of the influence of Japanese design on English designers again we see a broad approach uh, from a range of different artists but one of the the most important if not the most important artists in England or designers I should say in mm. England at this time is a man called Dr. Christopher Dresser. He was a uh, leading designer of the period, became the leading designer in the late 19th century in England, and really did he, quite. Did uh, he have an architecture background? Uh, he No, botany. Botany. Background. He had a PhD from Jena University uh, in Germany in as a botanist. Yes. Mm, fascinating. Yes, one of those. Um, like Morris in his own way, extraordinary Victorian uh, men, you know, that, yeah. you know, that just ha- had so many um, strings to their bow. Mm. Uh, but he was really one of the earliest um, industrial designers, you might say, proto-industrial designers, and des- produced designs for a number of manufacturers across a range of media, metalwork, ceramics, glass, uh, textiles, wallpapers as well, um, cast iron furniture and... Um, and other furniture as well. A real revolutionary. He was the first designer to travel to Japan. He went for four months in 1876 to 77 as a guest of the Japanese emperor and he took a collection of art from the director as a gift from the director of the South Kensington Museum to the Japanese emperor as a, as um, a contribution to the uh, the newly established National Museum in, in Tokyo, Edo, in Tokyo, modern-day Tokyo. And then he travelled the country, the length and breadth of the country, over four months and he had access to... Uh, different um, aspects of Japanese culture and cultural practices that, that no one else at the time had access to being a 
guest of the emperor, of course. And so he visited many, many manufacturers, potteries, um, all sorts of different manufactories, and he collected voraciously while he was there thousands of artworks. He, in fact, mm. collected for Louis Comfort Tiffany, the great uh, American designer of the late 19th century and glass manufacturer who had asked him to bring back a range of Japanese art for him, um, for himself. He also brought back a huge collection for, or a large collection for the V&A, uh, Victorian Albert mm. Museum in London, and, of course, his own collection as well. So, um, and Japanese art had a quite profound effect on dresser in his design, more so than any other British designer of the period. You could say that um, we talk about a, and in the exhibition we refer to a style called the Anglo-Japanese style, and that's a very broad term for, I guess, the broad influence of Japanese design on English manufacturers of the time. And, and, And we're looking at, when we talk about that, we're talking about Uh, influence at a very commercial level. So manufacturers, um, English manufacturers across, again, a range of um, fields, producing works that are essentially quite European in in their form and design, but the decoration on them is Japanese in inspiration. So Mm -hmm. you might see um, a traditional style uh, porcelain tea service produced by the Worcester Manufactory, but it's decorated with cranes um, or bamboo or such, you know, quite sort of literal representations of Japanese design. And we see that across, as I said, a broad spectrum of production by um, English manufacturers and this was to feed that voracious taste amongst um, the middle classes uh, in England that just could not get enough of Japanese design in their lives. It was really almost a craze, if you like, for Japanese taste and design um, in the people had... um, to represent, they wanted to represent it in their in their domestic life, basically. Mm. And we, we we're seeing at this period that great rise of of the middle classes, if you like, and that this material is being produced at an affordable level, if you like, an affordable scale for people to be able to acquire and decorate their their homes. And so, when we're looking at in- influence on English taste, I guess it is a, a broad. Um, Influence on in this Anglo-Japanese style, and then we have Christopher Dresser, who is imbibing Japanese design at another level once again. And you mentioned a, um, a silver tea service mm. in the show. There is this most marvelous tea and coffee service designed by Christopher Dresser, by produced by Hukin and Heath, a silver-plated, electroplated service. And it is so far beyond its time. It is it is like nothing of the Victorian period whatsoever. The forms are simple, circular volumes, basically, with offset little feet, um, angular handles, very mm-hmm. much um, directly influenced by you know Japanese design in both its form, but also the fact that it is devoid of decoration, uh, and that is quite revolutionary for this period. It, we we might look at it now and not even bat an eyelid, but for this period in the eighteen seventies in England, you know, to have something like that, that the only, I guess the only aspect of this that offered any sense of decoration is the fact that it was a reflective surface and so mm. the decoration was what was reflected in the surface and also the manu- the actual manufacturing details of the work, so the rivets that literally riveted on the feet and the handles uh, onto the, 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 the body of these works form the only um, decoration on this object. That is revolutionary for this time but that is a Dresser's direct imbibing, if you like, and internalising of design, Japanese design principles. Mm. 
It is. It's very um, streamlined mm. and sleek mm. and it, utterly modernist. Completely, mm. it, it has no mm. at all. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. not ornate, which is what mm. you know you would have seen previous to that, and That's even right. at that time. and at that time by by mm. virtually all other uh, designers, English designers of the period. But if I, and if I could also just add that um, there's another part of the exhibition, an interior that we've created, a, a room interior setting, I should say. Um, which looks at the, the the rise of the aesthetic movement in England in the 1880s and 1890s. And this ties in with um, an Anglo-Japanese taste, if you like. But it's a more artistic taste, once again, dare one say, where it's not just producing works for a mass taste, if you like, or a cons- consumer taste. It is it is more at an artistic level uh, and it's about the aesthetic movement itself was quite short-lived but it was a very specific, one of those design reform movements that ar- arose at the end of the 19th century in direct opposition and um, against the arts and crafts movement of the mid-19th century, which had very mm. specific moralising tone, a very specific moralising tone to it uh, in terms of how it... Uh, wanted to instruct people on how they should live their lives and the and the, the useful role in which art could play in, in one's life um, in, in keeping you on the straight and narrow moral path. Whereas aestheticism was, was literally that. It was about um, throwing off all... Um, heavy moralising um, import in in art, and that that art was literally art for art's sake, and that was yeah. the rallying cry of this movement. That it was about purely visual delight and um, to pl- pleasure the senses in that sense, and to um, for pure enjoyment, visual enjoyment, and in that sense, Japanese art was a critical influence on the, on aesthetic designers because to to Western designers, Japanese art really had no um, heavy historical overtones whatsoever in, in uh, even though to Japanese art to Japanese artists it did of course mm. have historical meaning but that was completely lost on Western designers and so it was purely a a visual style and a new uh, refreshing visual style that um, um, English designers in particular picked a, picked up on and used um, in, in a purely decorative way at that very surface level and so it was a huge influence on aesthetic design and interiors of the period. Mm. That's um, a really good point, the aestheticism and aesthetic movement because mm. uh, some people in literature have termed it decadence <laughs> and it probably reflects the fact that some people thought it was decadent to yes, delight in, you know, visual beauty. beauty. For its own sake. Yes, just yes. because one wanted to smell, see, feel, yep. taste beauty Yes, um, because it, they enjoyed Without it. Without feeling that it had to have some moral import yeah. behind it. Yeah. yeah, or some meaning. It yes. didn't even need to have meaning. It just that's had right. to have... Delight. Yeah. That's it. It's And that's a great, um, a great part of the exhibition, I think, because... Mm. It's so often we talk about the meaning behind <laughs> some things and don't just appreciate it for its beauty. That's right. So, um, yeah, there is certainly a lot of beauty mm. in this exhibition mm. and um, and even the Art Nouveau yes. section I think is one of those um, spots where you could just stand in front of it and mm. adore Yes, it just for the, its yes. own sake. Yes, there's a there's a lot there's a lot going on in that small space actually mm. in terms of the art that's on display there in the Art Nouveau and, and in that at that point that's towards the the latter end of the exhibition where we see 
I guess those profound lessons that Japanese art is, has had on European artists and we see at this point in time in Western art when we're talking about the Art Nouveau movement we're talking about it's quite short-lived again the 1890s through to the outbreak of the First World War really the, the two, two decades essentially two and a half decades where at this point in time we see artists Western artists really internalising like Dresser did two, two decades earlier internalising and completely imbibing um, principles of Japanese art and, and, a, and um, a reverence, if you like, once again for the natural world. But at this point, we, we no longer see any overt orientalising of, uh, of the artwork itself. There's, there's certainly no representations of cranes or parasols mm. or geishas, etc. Gone as all that literal copying and imagery. It is, it is, it is a deeper internalising of principles of design and um, one, I think, perhaps just to pick one work that really embodies so much of, 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 of those um, ideals. Uh, the there is a glass vase. It's called the Jack in the Pulpit vase, in reference to a flower called the Jack in the Pulpit, highly toxic flower apparently, uh, in America. And it was it's a glass vase designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the great Art Nouveau glass designer of the late 19th, early 20th century. And the vase itself is in the shape of this flower. It is a functional vase, but at the end of the day, it's a piece of sculpture as well. Mm. At the, it, it, it is, it, um, it's made from an iridescent glass uh, called a favril glass, which was a, a particular type of glass that um, Tiffany perfected. And so it has quite an iridescent surface to it and, and, and beautiful, soft, coruscating colours over the surface. And it's both the the soft uh, swelling forms of the vase, the proportions of the swelling base and the very, very long, slim stem and then the opening out of the flower head at the top, which forms the top of the vase. It is a piece of abstract sculpture at the end of the day, um, but it... And, and it it is a functional vase still at the end of the day. And so we see the beginnings of modernism emerging, if you like, right in front of us in this vase and other works as well in that area of the Art Nouveau uh, display. Mm. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much, Amanda. It's a pleasure. It thank was you. wonderful to have you. And please make sure that you head on down to Japanese Japan and the Birth of Modern Art at the NGV International. And I've been speaking with Amanda Dunsmore, the Senior Curator of International Decorative Arts and Antiquities. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRR-FM. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.